right, my friends, politics and the way of Jesus. Are you ready? <laughs> Boy, I tell you, it sometimes does feel as if you hope that the solution to this problem is that you could actually vote for God, um, which is kind of like voting for a theocracy, which kind of puts the fear of God into some people about that. But I recognize at the out front that what I'd like to share with you is not going to be this. Some of you are going to be very happy about that. Some people wait for churches to declare and to demand, tell me exactly who I should vote for. Some churches actually get very much involved with going down each pieces of legislation and pros and cons and then giving actual directive advice towards all of that. I just want to obviously say at the outset, I'm not doing that today. Some of you are, that's, this is why you're at Spark, because we don't do that. Um, I've entitled this specifically politics and catch this the way of Jesus so what we're going to do today is we're going to enter into the danger zone as we've done before where when you talk about religion and politics it feels as if you can't really have a normal conversation there's no real right way to do this so it can feel sometimes as if when you enter into those conversations Wherever you are on the political spectrum, you're going to get something wrong. You're going to offend somebody, and it's just going to turn into chaos. It's just one hot mess, especially since we have many voices, voices that you already know about, that have, uh, shall we say, co-opted a particular political party and a particular religious ideology, all the same. This was actually my favorite. Jesus didn't ride an elephant. It's got a little picture of a donkey there. So, okay, only a couple of you last. I'm already offending people. Great. Um, so, especially given all of this, it can feel as if this is a really dangerous topic. Tony Campolo was actually famous for saying, mixing politics and religion is like mixing manure with ice cream. It doesn't harm the manure, but it sure harms the ice cream. Which is to say that if you are a religious person, a person of faith, attempting to follow Jesus, and you enter into this conversation, it can be really, really destructive for your faith, your religion, it can be really corrupting. By the way, Ben and Jerry's beat them to it. Apparently they have cow power ice cream. So I thought that was the political ice cream that you could have there. It does feel as if this is a recipe for disaster. What I'd like to share very briefly today and, and actually just as a, uh, a little bit of footnote. I wanted to talk about this today. Danielle actually looked at me and said, really? Do you really want to do this? And I said, yes. And here's why. Like we have talked about other issues, there's a part of me that cannot help but feel as if the way of Jesus, this tradition that you and I have inherited that we are attempting to live out and pass on to our children, which is the kingdom of God, the love of neighbor, the love of enemy, all of those things that we talk about has to, has to be informative of how we live every aspect of life. Now, that doesn't mean that it has to conform to a very limited, specified way when it comes to politics. But for us to completely not talk about that reality when we are followers of Jesus, for me, this is my confession, for me feels like irresponsible. We are Christians. Many of us are attempting to follow Jesus. Some of you may not be and you're figuring stuff out. That's totally cool. And we're Americans and we vote. And there has to be some way to have a conversation about those two things in a way that's healthy, productive, loving, 
and exemplifies the way of Jesus without necessarily co-opting, you know, a particular party into your religious ideology. So that's why I think it's important to talk about. As always, this is not the end. This is the beginning. Uh, I was telling somebody earlier that if you come to Spark, we start a lot of things and we don't finish them. Today is going to be very similar. We're going to start a conversation that we hope continues on and we ask more questions, but we're not necessarily going to finish it, meaning tell you what the answer is. To do that, There's a lot of authors, plenty of them, uh, that have written extensively about this issue, that have written prophetically about this issue, that have written from the way of really deeply trying to understand Jesus and how we're supposed to live in American culture. And then another guy by the name of Randall Balmer has actually written extensively about how to Uh, have this conversation when it comes to evangelicalism specifically. Like, what does that mean? The issue of politics and religion made me think about this axiom when it comes to management, leadership, and organization. There's this question that some people ask when it comes to how you lead an organization. And one of those questions is, is this thing that you're dealing with a problem to be solved? Or is it a tension to be managed. Now, a problem to be solved is something that you have to fix, that you have to get an answer to, and you have to do it right away. Otherwise, something's going to happen to your business or your organization. Tension is something that you're constantly being pulled back and forth, and there's never a resolution. There's always a sense of, okay, today, in this decision, I think we're going to lean more in this direction, but in another scenario, another situation, we're going to lean a little bit more in this direction. Churches have to deal with tension all the time. How much money do you spend? That's a tension. Do you spend more money for outreach or missions, or do you spend more money supporting and encouraging the existing congregation? And there's always this tension. Is there a right answer to that? No, that's a tension to be managed. And what I'm going to suggest to you is the same thing is true about politics and religion, is that this is really more attention that is to be managed. How much should my faith or my politics interact? And there's not necessarily a very clear answer to that. It's attention. In some particular issues or some particular moments in time, you feel drawn more that your faith expression has deep significance for what happens in the voting booth. And then other times you feel more drawn in another direction because of the issue or because of the circumstance or situation. I'm going to suggest to you that it's a tension to be managed. And because Spark has the ethic and the value of reconciliation... Please hear this. Reconciliation is trying to bring things back together again when they've been broken. So we're going to attempt to bring this relationship of politics and religion back together, initiate that conversation, especially since tomorrow's the Republican convention and next week's going to be the Democratic one and all the news that's going around. And this is the tension. This says A-U-T and ocracy. This is T-H-E-ocracy and D-E-M. What kind of political system? And I love this little cartoon because it feels as if you've got this choice at times to pick one or the other. Are we okay so far? Tensions, no answers, the initiation of conversation, and we feel like this is important. Why? Because as followers of Jesus, we have to face this. We are both followers of Jesus and Americans at the same time. The other reason, and now I'm going to get into more of the meat of it, we have been here before. And politics, government, economics has always been a part of our tradition and our movement of Jesus. Um, I'll do my best to try to share this with you. 
This says, give us a king from the book of 1 Samuel. Now, some of you are going to be familiar with this story. I'd like to share a little bit of what happened way back somewhere around the 10th and 11th century BC when Israel was becoming a nation. They had had particular ways of governing, which were primarily through priests and prophets. But then something radically shifted. And this story, our Bible in 1 Samuel, records some of the shifts and the changes that happened. So, this is chapter 8, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And here's what God says. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. Now that statement alone is explosive. Because here are people that are attempting to figure out new ways of governing. And they see a bunch of other nations with how they govern. And they say, that's the way we want to do it. We want a king so that we can be like these other people, so that we can have a governance like them. And what does God say in response? The reason why you want that is because you have ultimately rejected me as your king. That's a pretty significant indictment. Now, go listen to what else happens in this passage. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him, for a king. And he basically goes down and says, listen, you want a king? Okay, we're going to give you a king, but you got to know what's going to come with that, which means the oppression that comes with the king, the rulership that comes with the king. I'm just going to give you the heads up. And after all that explanation, the people still say, yes, we want a king. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Does anybody know the name of the king that God gave, that Samuel gave over? What was his name? Saul. Do you know what's so brilliant about this name? The name Saul in Hebrew, Shaul, means asked for. God gives them a king named, you asked for it. Think about that. Shaul. We're asking for a king. We're asking for a king. And God says, You asked for it and gives them a king named you asked for it. And here's the the crux. Here's the the driving point. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mitzpah uh, and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt. I, I want you to hear the burden that God has here. I brought you, Israel out of Egypt, out of that land of slavery, which, by the way, had a king on the throne. And I delivered you from all the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. Do you hear this yearning? You were under an oppressive regime. Don't you remember what I brought you out of? But now you have rejected your God. 
who saves you out of all of your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by tribes and by clans. This passage is heartbreaking to me because it seems to indicate that this group of people back in the 10th century BC knew what it was like to come out of a power regime that was oppressive with a king, with a government that put them under slavery. And once they got their freedom, they started to realize the opportunities that were afforded to them, looked at all the other nations around and said, we want that. We want that. It is almost as if they had completely forgotten what it was like to be under that that they wanted. Ultimately, as God is saying here, They've forgotten me. They've forgotten what it's like to be freed from that. They've forgotten what it's like to be liberated from that kind of government. So I'm going to ask a question that is probably going to be one of my most provocative questions. Again, I don't necessarily know if I agree with this question, but it's a question that emerges when I read this text. Is clamoring for political power a symptom of a loss of faith? Is clamoring for political power a symptom of of a loss of faith. And in our current context, I feel as if Christians, and specifically people of faith, people who are trying to follow God, love God, follow Jesus, it feels as if we're in a position of trying to clamor for that political power. And I just wonder, question, no answer. Does that have resonance? with our tradition and our history of the Israelites. We want a king. If only we had power, if only we were in charge, if only we put a Christian on the throne, in charge, etc. So that's one question I'm going to leave with you to wrestle with, to consider. And the second is this. Fast forward about a thousand years. There's this guy by the name of Julius Caesar. Rome has gone through a very tumultuous time ever since the 700s BC and trying to figure out how are we now going to govern? We've conquered all of these people. How are we now going to keep the Roman Empire together? One of those developments is the death of Julius Caesar in 44 BC. When he dies, a comet, a comet shows up in the sky. Now, to the Roman people at that particular time, they had taken that as a sign of Julius Caesar ascending to the heavens, returning to his throne in heaven. In other words, they deified Julius Caesar, which begins the process of Roman emperors, political governors, becoming theologized, becoming equal with God on the throne here on earth. His son, Julius Caesar's son, is named Octavian. He's an adopted son, takes the throne after the assassination of Julius Caesar. Octavian is not how you know him in your Bible. You know him as Caesar Augustus. The word Augustus means exalted one, worshipped one. And Caesar Augustus, Octavian, actually minted coins during his rule and reign. And I'm sorry you can't read this, but this is a coin of Julius Caesar. And it says, Divus Julius, or Julian. He had taken the idea of Julius Caesar ascending to the heavens and minted it in coins to declare, My father was divine Julius, which makes me what? The son of God. 
This all happens around that first century, right at the time when somebody else was born who was declaring to be the Son of God. Julius, uh, Caesar, excuse me, um, Octavian, Caesar Augustus, then begins to use language, Latin and Greek language, to declare himself to be that power. And he used the words Lord, Savior, divine son of God and other words that sound vaguely familiar to those of you who have read your Bible. Yes, these words, Lord, Savior, are not just religious terms. They're political ones. And what began to happen in this first century is that the Roman emperor slowly over time and Tiberius and Nero and consecutive Caesars and emperors after became more and more divinized as this reign and rule began to go on. In other words, they were mixing politics and religion, which was one and the same. And it was into this culture and context that a nondescript nobody from the region of Galilee, a very unimportant part of the Roman Empire, was born, began to attract followers who was announcing a new way of living that promoted peace and harmony and unity and the coming of the kingdom of God, even though a God was already on the throne. And the language that these people began to use for this person was political language. Lord, Savior, Son of God. In some ways suggesting that while we have somebody on the throne who's in political power, while that is true and we have to live under that reality, there's a different ruler that also exists in that same reality, in that same political culture and context that we believe is actually Lord, that we believe is actually Savior, that we believe is actually God. But he's not on the throne and he's not in political power. But his way will ultimately rule and reign our hearts and our communities and ultimately transform the world, which is why we are here. You guys know the story or familiar with parts of it. Jesus lives his life and has this amazing dialogue at the end, which is a trial with Pontius Pilate, another political leader. And there's this dialogue that happens between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Another political term. Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, which is a really kind of snarky rhetorical comment I love about Jesus. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And then Jesus says this. My kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. This new rulership that rose up, taking in all of that political language and lingo, appropriating it to this movement of Jesus, is declaring this is, not, this is not my realm. This is not where I play. This is, not the, this is not my thing. This is not why I've come here. 
my rulership somewhere else, someplace else. Oh, we have to live under this rulership, Pilate, Caesar. But the kingdom that I am building is not the kingdom of this world. You are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason why I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I'm going to suggest to you, friends, as provocation, as consideration, that yes, the movement of Jesus is about a rulership in the kingdom. But as he has shown and as he's declared, all of that language is being redefined and reappropriated, not for political power here, but for a kingdom and a movement that is other than this world. Are you with me? Are you hearing this? Now, last little punch here. Ultimately, Jesus succumbs to the trial and the accusations that come upon him. And he dies at the hands of Rome. Crucifixion is not a Jewish punishment. It's a Roman punishment. It is a political statement to say, you are an insurrectionist and you're coming against our kingdom. You're coming against our power. You are a threat to our society. So we're going to crucify you. In other words, the cross is not just this beautiful religious symbol about redeeming humankind and God. It is also a political symbol to say, we, Rome, are destroying you and your movement. And what happened? Jesus succumbs to the cross. He ultimately dies. He is tortured and humiliated. This, by the way, is, if you can see it, is one of the only archaeological evidences that we have crucifixion. You can see, uh, you can come see the picture later about the nail that is nailed into the side of the foot, actually this way against the cross. And here's what I see so beautifully in this. Jesus was tortured, humiliated, and ultimately murdered at the hands of this political regime. And yet, this is our message, was raised to life. No matter what happens, no matter what suffering, no matter what comes out of the political regime that we are under, Jesus's power, this kingdom movement that he is Lord is saying, bring it on. Because we can resurrect new life out of that. Later, fast forward a couple years, another guy by the name of Paul takes the same theme and moves it forward and says, our citizenship, which again is political language, it's not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we're not fighting here. We're fighting for something much deeper, much more profound. And we eagerly await a savior from there. Later on in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh. It's not against that party. It's not against that candidate. It's not against that referendum or that piece of legislation. Our, our fight is against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the fight that we are in. The darkness, the structures of existence and powers that be, that's our fight. And I believe what Paul is doing is pulling in all of the beautiful strains of what Jesus was teaching and applying it now even again to his day and age. So my friends, I'm going to suggest a couple things. The lessons that I draw from this history, Saul, Caesar, Paul, crucifixion, 
political moments all along our history, which I think is in and of itself profound and informative, that we've been fighting political battles since the beginning of time. When I see Jesus enter into this realm, I get the sense that because he's fighting for something other than just power and political prestige, I get the sense that the way of Jesus that he has instituted into that realm does not demonize the other. He has interactions with Roman centurions, with Pilate, with Pharisees, with all sorts of people along the spectrum. And he does not demonize them, but offers them another way to say, hey, you, regardless of where you are, you, you can come, follow me. Fishermen, Roman centurions, religious leaders, members of Herod's household. If you read Luke chapter eight carefully, there are members of Herod's household supporting Jesus's ministry. And so what I'm going to suggest to you is that Jesus saves. And the whole point is that this salvation, that Jesus is Savior and Lord, is to come to Republicans and to Democrats and to Libertarians and to Independents and people that are going to vote for Trump and people that are going to vote for Hillary. This salvation, the way of Jesus, offers this way, this salvation to them. Not to demonize them. Not to say... How in the world could you vote for such a person? Which may be a reasonable response. But the way of Jesus ultimately says, let me understand why. And can we have a conversation about a different kind of a kingdom, a different way of living into this world? This us versus them reminds me of a great Anne Lamott quote that we don't demonize other people. She said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. So be careful, my friends. The other thing that I see is that Jesus is not ultimately looking for power. He's looking for heart transformation. This movement is to bring in no matter who you might happen to be. And for us as people of faith, the question is, if you are clamoring for power, are we exemplifying a symptom that we've lost faith because Jesus wasn't clamoring for power. And the last thing is fear. We don't have to be afraid. And much of the conversations I've had is like, if so-and-so gets into office, you know, Jesus lived under the oppressive regime of Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, the Christians lived under Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, and they, they flourished, grew, understood that their kingdom was not of this world. So I'm going to propose to you, my friends, that the way of Jesus replaces us versus them with we. No matter where you are, I know I'm, I have friends in this group that are going to vote for Hillary. And I have friends in this group that are going to vote for Trump. And I have friends in this group that are going to vote for, who's that guy? And I, listen, I know that we have all of us together. We, all of us, the way of Jesus is offered to us all. And I'm going to suggest that the way of Jesus doesn't clamor for power. That is not his agenda. What he's attempting to do is build his kingdom, which is ultimately the transformation of your heart and my heart, wherever we might happen to be on the political spectrum. And that the way of Jesus completely dissipates fear. 
perfect love casts out all fear and offers us hope that no matter what happens in our political arena, we know that we have a Lord and a Savior and a Son of God who can ultimately radically transform this world in spite of who might happen to be elected. And this cross and this citizenship that is spoken of in your Bible are political symbols and identities where we take them on and we say, yes, bring it on. Whatever happens this season, whatever happens any season politically, we can still thrive. We can still live in the citizenship of heaven and we can still exemplify the very ethics and values of the way of Jesus in the voting booth, out of the voting booth, no matter what happens. My closing comment is this. Jesus, I'm suggesting to you, my friends, never gave up on the fundamental vision, not to position himself with political power, but to transform the way in which people lived, regardless of what political circumstance they may find themselves in. 1100 BC with kingdoms and monarchies, first century BC and AD with Roman empires, and 21st century democracy with presidents and senators and representatives and governors. These are all a part of different systems that we're all engaged with. And by the way, let me just say, it's of course beautiful that we have these conversations and fight for what we think is right. All I'm simply saying is, that the way of Jesus, if we can get down to the fundamentals of this, is ultimately about the vision of making disciples, teaching people to follow Jesus in his way, regardless of the political circumstance we may find ourselves in. So that's my message. That's my talk. And it's not the end, because I'm sure some of you are going to go, but wait a second. And welcome to Spark. That is completely allowed, permissible, and invited. Because that's who we are. Father God, um, I hope that in some ways, our hearts are moved and inspired by your way. I know that there's a lot of uh, tension and concern and animosity and rhetoric around our political season and our political situation. But I pray that in some ways you would give us a supernatural sense of peace and a supernatural sense of identity that we belong to you ultimately. And that we need not fret, we need not fear, and we need not demonize others. But that we offer this beautiful way of redemption and hope and life that you offer to us, to all, to all, regardless of political identity. We do pray for our nation. We ask that uh, some semblance of civility, um, and some semblance of progress or uh, w would continue to take place even in our democracy. And I do pray for Christians in this nation that are fighting for really, really wonderful and good things. I pray also that we would never supplant you being on our throne for the hope of somebody else being elected into office. And may we submit ourselves to you in that way, once again, in your name, everybody said, amen, amen.